This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey everybody, this is Joshua Lewis with The Remnant Radio. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We've got a great episode for you with Dr. Leighton Flowers. We're going to be talking about soteriology, the study of salvation, specifically pertaining to the Calvinism-Armenianism debate. Stay tuned. It's going to be great. Hey everybody, this is Joshua Lewis with The Remnant Radio. Thank you so much for tuning in today. For those of you who are new to the program, uh, Remnant Radio exists for three purposes. We want to challenge orthodoxy. That means anything that's commonly taught in our pulpits. We want to make sure that that is biblically truth and not the traditions of men. So we have different pastors and teachers from different churches and denominations coming on the program uh, to help us grapple with those theological truths. Uh, we want to embrace diversity. That's having pastors and teachers on. And finally, we want to empower you for practical ministry. John seventeen three says eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So we believe as we're discussing theology, the knowledge of God and who Christ is and his work in our lives, we believe it'll impact and transform your life. That is my shameless plug. Jeff, how are you doing Always. Today? It's not shameless. It's important. Yeah. I'm doing well, man. I mean, I'm not ashamed of it. No, I'm doing great. Yeah. Had, a, had, a, had a good week. I'm going to get comfortable here. You got to fly, fly, fly. win mm. and a fly, a fly whip and a fly. I got a fly whip. Yeah. You got your got car, house shirt. and your Cowboys fly football team. Yeah, I got a new Toyota Sienna, so yeah, we're mobbing. Deep. All you do is win. win All win, I do win, is win. win. Yeah, I'm yeah. Getting, I'm not getting tired of winning. That's good. Thanks, Trump. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, and to and my left, have and you are right. I've got Doctor Layton Flowers. Uh, 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 do you go by Pastor or Doctor more often? Than just Layton. Layton. Okay. Yes, just Layton. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your ministry. I follow you on YouTube, watch quite a few of your videos, quite a few of your debates. Uh, fascinating stuff. I think it really, really Thanks. interesting. Uh, tell us about uh, how people can connect with you, uh, your ministry, sure. your church, all that good stuff. Well, what I really, I mean, I spend the most of my time on is evangelism. I'm the director of evangelism for Texas Baptists. Um, before that, I was a director of youth evangelism. So most of my life has been spent um, really reaching people for the cause of Christ. Awesome. Um, I just happened to start a podcast that became really, really popular. And so everybody that knows Oops. me through the internet knows <laughs> yeah, me yeah. as the, the Calvinist guy that, that is debating with Calvinists and things like that. And, and so, um, and that's Soteriology 101. And I created that site because I wanted to be able to answer some questions from our perspective because I just did not see a lot of good, robust, deep theological answers from the non-Calvinistic perspective, because yeah. I'm a former Calvinist, and and I like to talk theology. I'm a theology geek at heart. Amen. And uh, and I and every time you Google anything about predestination, election, soteriology, yeah. it is Calvinism, Calvinism, Calvinism. And mm. I just and learned, Dr. Brown. Yes, <laughs> right. Yeah, that's about <laughs> it. yeah. And so I, I was just trying to present some other perspectives and help people to see those things from a, a more 
traditional soteriological position, um, what I call provisionism, mm-hmm. yeah. which is that God provides uh, salvation for every man, woman, boy, and girl. He loves all people. Um, God does not uh, pick and choose who will be saved before the foundation of the world right. and, and leave most of humanity without hope of salvation, but instead he provides the means by which all people may be saved because yeah. he loves all people. Yeah. I think that um, view of sociology needs to be made more known uh, in our culture right now because it's something that I hold dear. I think it uh, really speaks to the character of God, the nature of his goodness, his kindness. I think it also is really needed in a, a culture today that's growing ever growing uh, skeptical and secular, yeah. and, and I think uh, we need to do better at, from our perspective, presenting these views with cordiality and love towards mm-hmm. those who disagree with us, but at the same time, uh, to be robust and deep. One of the, the pet peeves of mine is the, the uh, perception that is often out there of that the Calvinists are the deep theological, spiritual, yeah. Guys, oh, yeah. the exegetical guys, and those non-Calvinists are, are more Joel, Joel Steen types yeah. that are just yeah. the chicken soup for the soul type yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm trying, Precious moments yes, Bible. Right, exactly. <laughs> yes. and, and I'm hoping to, to, to curtail a little bit of that and help yeah. people see another Well, I'm effect. excited to hear your, the story of, you said you used to be Calvinist and how, you know, you're not anymore. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think I came out of so, it, but, you know. how did you convert? Yeah. <laughs> Into Calvinism or out, out of? of well, yeah. uh, how did that, was it both and? You yeah. went in and I, then I came out? I grew up in a normal, you know, uh, a traditional normal church. church, I guess, that just taught normal, you know, what you would normally think of. God loves all people and sure. anybody can be saved. How of, of, of sociology, um, and I went to, uh, to to the university, and I uh, was mentored by a Calvinist friend who is still a good friend of mine, one of the most godly men I know. He's still a good friend, and I love him, um, but we were mentored uh, there at, at Hardin-Simmons. Uh, matter of fact, Matt Chandler came in the next oh. year, and we helped convert him into Calvinism. <laughs> there soon oh, after, man. But that was fun. Um, but I, I uh, received a book by John MacArthur called A Shame of the Gospel. I read it when I was in Russia, mm-hmm. and there was a section there teaching on Calvinistic sociology, and I just swallowed hook, line, and sinker. It Good old Johnny just, Mac, he'll do yeah, that. It, it did, and I, I adopted the system, and and uh, became a full-blood five-point Calvinist for a good 10 years of my life, even uh, helped to split my home church back in Wiley, Texas. Oh, wow. Was a part with me and my brother and our families were a part of a split that started a church called Cornerstone uh, there that still exists there in Wiley. And I, I later, I'm kind of fast forwarding, but later, several years after that split, um, I ended up going to that church and becoming one of their ministers mm. and, um, and eventually came out. And so uh, I can tell you that story too, I guess. Yeah, uh, go for it. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, I was reading a book by A.W. Tozer. Mm hmm. Which one? I, um, uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I need to go back and look because I get my uh, my books confused of his. Um, but I need to go back and look at which one it was. I just know I was reading Tozer. I just remember that. Um, and his what some of what he was saying wasn't fitting my paradigm. Mm-hmm. And I just assumed he was a Calvinist because Piper quotes from him. He's a deep thinker. Yeah, he's a deep yeah, thinker. He's all, so yeah, he's I, I had that mindset. I really yeah. did. I just had the mindset that the deep theological Montgomery exegetical Boyce guys. quotes him. I was yeah. reading his book the other day. Yeah. So if, if he's deep, he's theological, he's exegetical, he must be a Calvinist. And so he wasn't saying things that were in line with Calvinism. And so I was like, what in the world? So I started doing some research, and I, I soon discovered he's not a Calvinist. He's actually rejected Calvinism. And and that led me also to find out C.S. Lewis wasn't a Calvinist, both mm-hmm. of which I just, just kind of assumed they were mm-hmm. leaning in more that direction. Um, and that, that made me, I had debated in high school and college, and that made me kind of take on 
that debate mindset that I used to have where you had to take on both sides of a debate. Mm -hmm. You had to be the affirmative and the negative, and they drilled that into you. And that's really a skill. It's hard to kind of put down your presuppositions for one position and take on the other and debate it wholeheartedly, and you've got to really learn it. Yeah. Deep. Yeah. And so that's kind of what I did. I t- took it on as a project as a theology geek and started reading. I started with Arminius. I just went and found Jacob's Arminius and started reading. He sounds like a Calvinist if you haven't ever read him. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. He sounds, you know, when you go back and read some of even like Calvin's writings or Arminius writings, they're like, wait, are Who's who here, right? Yeah, you, know, like you have to read yeah. his stuff over and yeah. over again because you know, that sounds like Calvinism. And it's like Arminius sounds like a Calvinist in so many ways. And he sounds very deep and intellectual. And yeah. it's like, this just do- doesn't fit the paradigm that I'd, I'd kind of put all Arminians and non-Calvinists into. And so that led me to at least start questioning, okay, could 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 there be some robust thinkers from the other perspective? And sure enough, I, I began to just uncover one after another after another mm-hmm. Very deep, very uh, exegetical type preachers and ministers and theologians uh, throughout human history. The Calvinists have just been better, especially in our generation of of uh, getting it on the internet. When yeah. you're when you're being kind of attacked, and Calvinists, let's just be honest, they they were kind of attacked There's for aggressive. a long time, and yeah, people kind of yeah. people kind of demonize them as just. And I remember feeling that way of just being like called a cult and all these other things. What that does is that coalesces a group. Mm-hmm. It does. And that makes them really strong. And the Internet came out in the 90s, and that's about the time when Al Mohler uh, came into the Southern Baptist Convention and yeah. uh, Piper started rising in, in popularity about that time Johnny Mac and Sproul's ministries were growing. And they were starting to coalesce together, and, and they were still being attacked, but that caused them to really really begin to put their message out there on the Internet. And so they, were, they just dominate, even today, yep. the Internet space. Yeah. And so the young generation that's coming up, they just they have this impression Calvinism is all there really is. That's just right. the only good theological, deep, robust answer that's that's there. And I know why it seems like that, but that's just historically not accurate. Yeah. Um, and and I think we've got to do a better job of helping to educate, not indoctrinate, but educate. I want people to understand Calvinism. I'm fine with people yeah. understanding what Calvinists teach. Yeah. I just think they that's need good. to understand the other side. Right. That's what it seemed. It seemed like you know from your story that it was a, kind of a lot. Uh, it was ignorance a little bit that led you into believing that you knew something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that you had the right answer right. was based on ignorance, and that's kind of like, you know, I mean, I, I I do believe that you have your heavy lifters that are that are thinking that are doing this stuff in in the Calvinist movement, but I I feel like that the reason why many latch on is because of the perception of well, these are the deep thinkers. They're like, well, I want to be a, considered one of these right. people. Yes. I want to be so. It's easy to go. Well, that's the that's the people that that are like that. So I want to be like that. So I'm going to adopt their theology, like you said, hook, line, and sinker, without really looking into the details or well, and, and or what you, else is out if there. If you get into the echo chamber of Calvin, the echo chamber. I was that was yeah. yeah it, it, once you get in there, all you know about Arminianism or non-Calvinism or any other group is what they tell you. Yes, mm-hmm. and I have yet I've put out a challenge to find any notable. Calvinists like Piper or Chandler or Driscoll or any of the mainstream guys that you're hearing, mm-hmm. do any of them paint the non-Calvinist perspective in a way that's fair Flattering. or in any way, yeah. um, in any way, something that a scholar from that side would go, yeah, that's a pretty good representation. 
I mean, I listen to Chandler. I love Chandler, but mm-hmm. he he painted Ar- Arminians as believing that God gets into DeLorean and travels into the future to see who's going to choose him, and then he chooses those yeah. people. I mean, this yeah. foresight kind of tunnel faith kind Just of perspective. A, yeah, false and, representation is really what yeah, it is. And almost know? every single sermon where they represent Arminianism, it's that simple foresight faith. God looks through the quarters <laughs> of time. God sees who's going to choose him, and therefore he chooses that person. And I thought that was the only alternative to Calvinism. And once I learned that there are many better, robust answers and from much deeper thinkers, um, I, it just made me begin to go, okay, I really do need to, to, to study this deeply and to learn from the best of the scholars from both perspectives. If, yeah. if I'm going to be fair, I'm fine if a Calvinist chooses to be a Calvinist, if they are educated on the best scholars from the other position. But right now, in our, in our culture, very few of the young, restless, reformed, new Calvinist types could even articulate what I believe about Romans 9, for example, or Ephesians 1, for example, or any of the other major proof texts. Um, They simply have not studied beyond the echo chamber. For the most part, there's Mm -hmm. exceptions, but for the most part, many of the Calvinists that are rising in popularity right now just simply do not know the other perspective very well. And to be fair, we aren't doing a very good job of presenting it. Correct. And you, you made that statement on the forehand. So, yes. so where, where do we point That's people fair. to? You've got a, a very successful podcast, YouTube channel, those kinds of things. Are there other people out there who make a good defense for this position, uh, both today and historically, that people can kind of – because I, right now, I, I'm reading uh, one, ju- one book by the, the Fundamentals of Faith by James Montgomery Boyce. I'm reading uh, two books from John MacArthur. One of them I'm reading for a second time. Uh, I, you know, I listen to Matt Chandler and Mark Driscoll regularly. I love sure. their content. I do too. Yeah. But I'm not Calvinist. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so um, to be fair, like – I went to I love church up guys. in Seattle. We would visit them oh, frequently. That makes me so jealous. the gospel yeah. like, um, so I've well. got friends who know Chandler, yeah. and I really am trying to get him on the show. Like, I love these guys sincerely, genuinely. We've had a, a Byron Young from Theocast, right. super Calvinist yeah. show, yeah. Um, come on the program and talk theology with us. So uh, just to, to be fair, what are, pla- where are places that we can go to check out these, these robust Armenian positions? Well, Sociology101.com is my website, and on that website there's a resource page where mm-hmm. I've started a list of non-Calvinist uh, sites and, and books and articles. You already mentioned Michael Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, David Allen from Southwestern has written a huge book on the atonement that I highly recommend. Adam Harwood down at New Orleans has written some some things on the nature of man with regard to uh, infants and, and the nature of infants yeah. and, mm, and uh, okay. really defending against the concept or idea that we're born uh, with a guilt nature, already guilty yeah, for what Adam good. did. But he talks about what a true sin nature from the scriptures would look mm-hmm. like. I think he does a great job. Um, and there are many more. Uh, there at Sociology 101, we, we just keep adding to that list of gr- really good theologians. And yeah. we, I don't call myself an Arminian because I differ with them on s- yeah. several key points. But um, Brian Abishano with the Society of Evangelical Arminians is a great scholar. He's written a lot of work that I agree with about the corporate view of election. I highly recommend a lot of his work. I think you should be familiar with what uh, Arminians teach and yeah. believe as well. And so I, I, I just I'm promoting as a you know as a professor. I, I'm a professor at Trinity Seminary as well as what I do with Texas Baptist. I, I want to promote people to learn. I, yeah, I want people good. to understand the perspectives because I think if we're educated about the different perspectives, I think we're more likely to make a, a better choice, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And just very few people right now in this culture understand uh, the other robust positions that are out there. And it's yeah. a fundamentalist approach to say, only study my answer. Right. right. And that's typically a movement that you want to distance yourself from. Um, the idea that, 
uh, I think God has made himself plainly known uh, that the scripture is understandable. You don't have to have a third party intermediate kind of explaining to you everything that's going on there. So to be able to sit and, and hear the best of both worlds um, uh, and be submitted to your local church, be submitted to, how, how do you, how do you approach that? That's, that's one question that I'm fascinated with is, is local church doctrine. Uh, I'm a Calvinist and I go to an Armenian church or vice versa. Um, uh, how much do you submit your theology, theology to the, your local church? That's a good question, and it's very pertinent because I get I get emails. As a matter of fact, I just got one recently of a, a, a man who is a part of a church that has a Calvinistic statement of faith. The pastor's a Calvinist. Most of the people are Calvinist, and he's been listening to the broadcast. and He said he brought it up in one of the um, in, in one of the Bible studies and kind of started promoting uh, my position. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'm praying and, for that guy now. And, and they and they said it was he said it was a real cordial <laughs> okay. conversation, yeah, and good. they hugged each other and said you know agree to disagree. <laughs> but then he got an email the next day oh, from yeah. his pastor saying you're promoting Latinism. He actually called it that. Oh, which I was just like rolled over in my grave. No, do not do that. Um, he was actually Quick, saying, you're change promoting. the title of the show. Do not do go not, in the. Do not. <laughs> he, he actually and so he he emails me and says I, you know I got accused of promoting Latinism, and I was just I was like oh my gosh. Um, and <laughs> there's nothing new about what I've said. My my view has been around a lot longer than me. But um, but he he his pastor had you know had heard about the podcast, and I guess other people brought it up, and he was just he was painting it as a, a cult and all this other stuff that I, that I was teaching. But my instruction to him, one of the things I said to him was. D- don't divide this church. Mm. You know they know what you believe, and it's fine to tell them what you believe. But they they have a Calvinistic um, d- doctrine that they have accepted. That's who they are. Uh, it's fine to tell them what they believe, what you believe. But he's asked you not to to talk about it, and so you need to submit to his leadership and or leave the congregation. You don't need okay. to split it. Um, and 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 I would say the same with the opposite. Um, if if a Calvinist is in having a, split one. Yes, having yeah. split one, most certainly. Yeah. If, if, it's if, like, if, unfortunately, if, speaking yes. from experience, yes, okay. I'm that guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, that's, and that's really what the basis of the word heretic is, is to be a divisive person. You can be divisive with right doctrine. And when you're trying to, to split people up and take people, people away. Where's that <laughs> okay. This is the mic drop moment yeah, for everybody okay. watching. <laughs> and, well, and that's the thing is you can be you know, right about something but be divisive with your, with your correct doctrine. Yeah. And so my, my advice Ooh, to people man. who are, uh, maybe cal- find themselves as being Calvinist in a church that's typically uh, traditionally um, a provisionist type of church or an Arminian type of a church. Um, don't try to split the church. You can ask questions. Yeah. You can be a part of the, the yeah. Bible studies, but don't try to. There's to plenty pa- of awesome yeah. Calvinist churches. Yeah, there are a lot out there, of churches yeah. out there to, yeah. that you can go to or you can worship with. You don't have to split your own church. That doesn't mean you can't talk about those, the, the theology, but when you're trying to to win people over to a particular worldview <laughs> and you know the pastor doesn't hold to that and, mm-hmm. and the, the, the doctrines, the statements of faith don't teach that, then, then that is, by definition, a divisive yeah. action. And I just, I, I warn against that. What do you feel is the reason why um, when you see like a, the, the approach that I guess, I mean, we're having, you know, and I've been in these, these debates before and I, I haven't always been as cordial as I would hoped, but you see from the other side, there's like this, like, accusation like it's almost like we're in like just we're oh this is awful like i can't believe you believe that and we're kind of like no it's cool you're you're free to believe that and we should be able to free really believe what we believe there seems to be like we're almost like you said heretics or we're almost in a cult if we believe what we believe why is it on their end on their side what is it about the calvinist mindset the theology that makes them more aggressive yeah i mean, I, mean, it's, it's pa- I, mean I think it's pa- yeah. i mean it's like 
we're really like what, what undermining them, God here. You what know, makes or, them convinced that we are playing? Well, I mentioned this before the show. Playing with fire, uh, Pelagianism. You Pelagianism, know, like like if you're yeah. Armenian, you're basically Pelagian. You think man is inherently good and not sinful, and because yeah. of that, um, you're obviously not a Christian. Um, what what makes? How do we disarm a situation like that to say no, no, no? We're we're brothers in Christ. I know you don't you don't see that because of our soteriological belief system. How do you disarm that? Well, that's, that's all good questions. You mentioned kind of extreme fundamentalism earlier. Yeah. When you mix Calvinism with extreme kind of a fundamentalism where our view is right and the presuppositional kind of a perspective that mm-hmm. we presume um, our position is true and yours is false in the sense yeah. of – whereas t- typically people from our side are a little bit more – uh, open-minded and, and you know, and I'm not saying education bases. That sounds like I'm not saying they're education based, but usually the angry types of people you come in from either perspective, Calvinism or non-Calvinism, have a tendency of looking down on education. You know that university thing will just you know that'll spoil you, um, that that'll mess you up. Um, and, and typically, people like myself and, and others that say things like, hey, I'd like for you to learn both views and, and be cordial about it. It's okay. And, and if you disagree with me, you know, I do believe in free will after all. So that, that's a good explanation <laughs> as to why you believe something differently than I do. Whereas the Calvinist has to ultimately say God has yeah. decreed for me to be wrong. Um, and God has decreed for one of his own that's children, good. especially those that they say that I'm a, a believer in, in Christ. They, they affirm me as a brother in Christ. Then they ultimately have to say that God has ordained for some of his children to have false theology yeah. and, to, and to start podcast. I mean, because he decrees all things <laughs> yeah. that come to pass upon their system. Yeah. And that just logically doesn't hold any water as far as I can tell, because either, either I'm right in, in defending God's glory mm-hmm. or God has decreed for me to be wrong. And, and, and I, his, for his glory. The waters, I mean, like, what's yeah. the point of that? Yeah. I mean, that makes no it, sense. It really so, doesn't. Yeah. And that's, and that's one of the reasons I really push on, I, I'm fine with examining the, the biblical, um, you know, exegetical questions. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's another one of the reasons that people um, end up, I think, swallowing Calvinism and getting into it is because most of us as non-Calvinists don't get into the exegetical discussions. We usually volley with proof text. Oh, Ephesians 1, well, what about John 3.16? Yeah. You know, whosoever, 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 the world will right. And we don't, and we go, well, but he asked you about Ephesians 1. Can you talk to him about Ephesians 1? Well, I don't believe in that predestination stuff. Okay, well, then you don't believe what Paul said because he believes in predestination. Mm. And so the Calvinists think, oh, well, I'm just going to keep being a Calvinist because that guy doesn't even believe in predestination, and predestination is a biblical word. Yeah. Instead, having an educated discussion saying, okay, you believe God is predestined who will believe and who won't believe. God is predetermined whether you'll be in Christ or you won't be in Christ. I believe that God is predetermined that whoever's in Christ through faith will be made holy and blameless and be yeah. conformed to the image of his son. There's two different doctrines mm-hmm. of predestination, but we both hold to a doctrine of predestination. Yep. Yeah. That simple little explanation helps people go, oh, so I don't have to be afraid of predestination. I can believe predestination. It means a, destined has been, a, a destination has been predetermined. My destination as a believer in Christ has been predetermined. Yeah. I know where I'm going. I will be conformed to the image of Christ. Why? Because God is predestined for whoever's in him through faith mm-hmm. to be predetermined to be changed into his image. So I don't have to believe that God has predetermined for some people to trust in Christ and leaving all others without hope of salvation. I can still hold to a doctrine of predestination without believing well, in meticulous determinism and all those kinds of things. That what you just said of of and I'm I'm conformed to Christ, so so in being I've been predestined for good works, I mean predestined to to conform into the image and likeness of his son. I've been predestined for these things. That that sounds like it 
gives a lot of eternal assurance. Um, exactly. uh, you know, like so it's it's not that we're even denying uh, some of the applications of. The, it's it's a man. It's a smorgasbord. We we talked about in the beginning of the show uh, about total depravity and how that is the the crux of the argument. If you de- the way that you define depravity, the way that you have, uh, def- uh, define sin nature mm-hmm. uh, in the life of a believer, will kind of lead you to all of the other uh, yes. supporting points. Yes. So 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 give us um, what what was the the rocky moment where where you came to grips with total depravity sure. how did you wrestle with that, that kind yeah of and uh, for the years many and many people do this so you know, I call myself a two or three point calvinist or something like that and you yeah. hear people say that all the time <laughs> yeah, they don't want to they don't want to be an arminian they don't want to be a limited atonement they right, won't, right. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. but they'll be a two or three point calvinist evidence, right so. and, <laughs> <laughs> well and i did that for a long time until i began to study what the scholars mean by each one of those points and mm-hmm. so used to for T for the total depravity, which I think is really the linchpin issue. <laughs> Even Arshish Brule says this is the, the the foundation of the entire system. If you hold to this from the Calvinistic perspective, logically all of it either rises or falls together on that. And I agree with him. I think that that's true. But when you understand total depravity, it's not just about man's sinfulness because who wants to deny that? I mm-hmm. mean, there's no good theologian or good pastor in the world who would want to de- deny the sinfulness of man that that sin impacts every fiber of our being and who we are. And from even from birth, there's a, there's an inclination towards selfishness and, and sin and, and lust and the, the, the desires of the flesh. Um, nobody's denying that. Um, nobody's denying, at least I'm not denying that we are, we are in bondage and slavery to sin. What I'm denying is that we're incapable. This, this concept of moral, total moral inability, what's called total inability, Sproul calls it. I can affirm depravity, man is sinful, without affirming this concept of moral inability from birth. And what does that mean? What Calvinists teach is that because our nature, our desire is set against God, we're God-haters from birth. And therefore, even when he brings the gospel appeal and says, I want you, believe in me, be reconciled to me, he makes that appeal, as as, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.20, I believe it is, um, says, Christ in us, making his appeal, be Mm -hmm. reconciled to God. Even when he does that, the gospel, that's not sufficient. You will hate the gospel. You will turn it down every single time unless he effectually regenerates you or effectually calls you irresistible grace kind of a thing happens. Okay. Yeah. And so I just push back on that. I, I don't think God's grace needs more grace to work. You know, I think his gospel is his <laughs> The gospel is his grace. Yeah. How do you believe in one whom you've not heard? What's mm-hmm. the implication of that? If you yeah. do hear, you may believe. Mm-hmm. Um, John twenty thirty one says um, that these things were written, speaking of the gospel, these things so were written so believe. that you may believe, and that by believing you may have yeah. life in his name. Well, what's the order there? By believing you have life in his name. And these things were written, the gospel was written, so that you may believe. Yeah. The gospel is as is gracious. He didn't have to send it. He didn't have mm-hmm. to send Christ. He didn't have to send the Holy Spirit down like fire. He didn't send had to have to send the Holy Spirit to bring conviction to the world. He did all of that in order to enable us to reply to him. He yeah, initiates good. salvation. And that's that grace is sufficient and you're responsible for what you do with Christ. And when I say responsible, silly me, I actually mean able to respond. Yeah. You're <laughs> able to respond to him. Yeah. Whereas total inability is saying you're not able to respond to him, but you're still held culpable for your choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't make any rational sense to me. And I don't think it's just, I don't think it's a biblical concept. Yeah, I think it's interesting that we were talking about the predestination in Ephesians 1 earlier. Well, in that very chapter, it talks about you be- you heard the gospel, you believed the gospel, and then you were marked by the Holy Spirit. Exactly. In that order. So yes. 
if they're not regenerate, yeah. <laughs> so, you know. What I mean? So the so argument to, right there, you know. So I mean, for those true. who are listening, I mean, basically the argument is that, that those who uh, the, the Calvinistic argument is that you must be regenerated before you could believe. Right. And the argument would would be made of of Lazarus. It's a common one that he was completely dead, and God had to make him come alive so that he could obey the command to yes. come forth. So uh, the the idea that we're dead in our trespasses, they liken it to the death of Lazarus. That. Lazarus is completely dead. Not mostly dead, not Princess Bride dead, <laughs> like dead. He's completely dead. And and God has to make him alive so that he can respond. Right. Um, that he can't even believe unless God regenerates him. He saves him first. And and that, I mean, ultimately just, just kind of flies in the face, in my opinion, of, of most of the gospel because it is faith that makes us alive. And they're saying that God makes you alive so that you can receive faith, and right. it's a it's a very backwards approach. I as I as I can read text. Yes. Uh, what what would uh, uh, is is that a fair representation of well, Calvinism? Well, is that, one, one yeah, one. I, I used it all the time. I use one. Lazarus is never linked soteriologically yeah. to how we're saved. Right. Um, it's a story. Uh, it's a narrative. It's about the power use, of God. That's right. About. And matter of fact, yeah. he even says, I delayed in coming so that I could perform this miracle so that you may believe. Now, that <laughs> seems superfluous if the regeneration is at work. <laughs> oh, it doesn't man. make it, This miracle right. is not needed to help you believe anything because yeah. regeneration is going to make you believe That's good. regardless of who I raised from the dead. So that, that, that just destroys that concept. Oh, and plus, man. when it talks about us being dead, as Ephesians 2 does, um, that is an idiom which speaks of being separated from God because of rebellion. Like mm-hmm. the prodigal son, he said he was lost, but now he's found. He mm-hmm. was dead, but now he's alive. doesn't mean he's not capable of coming home. He does obviously come home. He humbles himself and comes home. He's responsible for that. Um, what it means is he's in rebellion and he's separated. So it's yeah. about a distance. It's like the soul is separated from the body in death. So, too, you're separated from the Father because of rebellion. In fact, we know this from the church in Sardis when he says, you're dead. Wake up. Yeah. Does that mean the church can't wake up and respond? He was speaking to, to the them. church. Yes. And the but church is consisted of regenerate right. believers. There is right. no... <laughs> right. But they were dead, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> dead means dead. Dead means dead. Yes, dead means what the Bible means when it says dead. And yeah. it also talks about being sick. It might, matter of fact, there's analogies of illness with regard to sin mm-hmm. and our condition more often than deadness. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times, we're not sick, we're dead. Well, there's actually scriptures that speak of us being uh, in illness and, yeah. and, 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 and having uh, elements and those kinds of things as an analogy. And so you can't take an analogy yeah. or an idiom and just take it to seed and make it your core doctrine. Yeah. And that's what Calvinists have done with this by using this concept of deadness to mean that you're now morally incapable from birth to respond to even God's life-giving truth. Mm. That doesn't make any, any rational sense, nor is it biblical. I mean, we see in Genesis, for example, he lists what happened to them. They, they'll have labor pains and the toiling of the soil. Mm. It seems like he would have mentioned the worst of all <laughs> results um, of the fall. I mean, it's, I'm sorry, but toiling the soil and labor pains, even as, as bad as labor pains are, seems pretty insignificant to, oh, by the way, all of, your children, all of your children from now on won't even be able to respond positively to me when I call them to respond, and I send my own son for them to die for this, and they still won't be able to respond. So you're going to all be born God-haters, and most of you will spend eternity in hell for things you have absolutely no control over. That's actually the result of the fall under also Calvinism. Also, thorns. Oh, yeah. And also, yeah. yeah thorns. And, and <laughs> Switch gonna, that right in between the two. You're going to have a lot of pain when you have babies. I yeah, mean, yeah. Seems oh, babies like, hurt. Yeah. He and mentioned that solid point. Solid, never even considered it. It's a really solid point. Yeah. Actually, kind of messed up over so, here. So, so uh, uh, what is what is the number one uh, refutation that Calvinists bring to you that that, that, that 
you know, they see that you're a study theologian. They see that you're a scholar. They see like, hey, man, you're, you're obviously not uh, what they would consider a, a lazy theologian. You know, you're, you're not right. just skipping over all the predestination verses and running to free will verses. You're wrestling with them. You have a meaning. And inter- what's the greatest wrestle between you and a Calvinist? I mean, you debate these guys openly. What's yeah. what's well, where do you my, find yourself? Well, my in? debate with James White was over Romans nine because that is the the kind of the one of the linchpin texts that yeah. most Calvinists will appeal to. In fact, it's quoted so often. Anytime you uh, object to Calvinism, they will quote from Romans nine. I think out of context by saying, "Who are you to question God?" Which to them means, "Who are you to question Calvinism?" Mm-hmm. Um, who are you to question? Who my are you to question me? Is what he's really saying. Yeah. yeah. And so, <laughs> I, and, and I just point back and say, okay. The interlocutor, or the, the in, in a diatribe, there's the anticipation of who's um, uh, the, the listener for Paul. Mm-hmm. And so all theologians know there's an interlocutor with Paul's writing in Romans 9. Who is that interlocutor? Who is that person that's, that's asking Paul questions in his mind? If it's an Arminian, if it's a free will theist trying to object to reprobation that God has eternally damned some people to hell and, yeah. and, and effectually regenerated some— if, if that's the interlocutor, then Calvinists have won, and, and we should all become Calvinists, mm-hmm. and I will lead the charge, okay? But if the interlocutor is not that person, then, then the major proof text linchpin um, defense of Calvinism doesn't have a leg to stand on because I think that interlocutor is a Jew. I think he's an Israelite, mm-hmm. just like the, the same interlocutor. Matter of fact, he introduced in Romans chapter 3 when he brings up the same issue. If if our unrighteousness brings out your righteousness, then why are you to blame me? Because what is happening to Israel right now? Israel is self-righteous. They've grown hardened. They're not born hardened, by the way. It says they've grown hardened yeah. and self-righteous. They're blind. They no longer can see, hear, understand because they have closed their eyes, Acts 28, verses 23 and following. And because of that, God is cutting them off in their rebellion, cutting them off for their unbelief, as Romans 11 says, not arbitrarily for no apparent reason. He's cutting off because they don't believe and they've grown self-righteous. And God is using them in their unbelief to graft in the Gentiles and to bring about the crucifixion. They're the ones who cried out, crucify him. So God is using a Jew, an elect person, somebody that was supposed to be righteous, a child of Abraham. And he's using them to bring about redemption for the world. That is who would say, why are you to blame me? For who resists your will? Mm-hmm. If you're going to use me to bring about your righteousness because I cry out, crucify him, then why are you to blame me? If you understand that the interlocutor is a Jew who's grown hardened and calloused and God is giving him over to that callous condition, then Calvinism just doesn't have a leg to stand on. What a Calvinist will do, a quote from Romans 9, and they'll say things like, well, God can have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. I'll say, amen. Sure In he can. Romans 11, he's shown yeah. mercy to all. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. He cut them all off so as to show mercy, 1132, yeah. correct. And not only that, but mercy does not – never means to effectually save somebody. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's mercy, the assumption. Mercy means to be patient with somebody and mm-hmm. refrain from punishing them yeah. when they deserve to be punished. Loving kindness, which, you know, at times. Ironically, when you look at what Paul is quoting from out of Exodus 32 and 33, that's exactly what happens. The Israelites had built a golden calf, and, and, and uh, Moses intercedes and says, hey, blot me out of your book. Don't kill them. And his response to them is, I'll have mercy on whom I want to have mercy. In other words, I'll refrain from destroying them, Mm -hmm. even though they deserve to be destroyed. That's showing mercy. And so what is he, why would Paul quote that? Well, because God can show mercy to this hardened lump of of, of clay when he wants to, 
and he can also give them over to their hardness and strengthen them in their hardness if he wants to. And so Paul he can nearly show mercy quotes when that he wants for to. himself. I wish I was cut off in a curse for my countryman. Yeah. Exactly. Right? Like, yeah. Exactly. So when you understand that there's national components here, obviously, of the Israel being represented, and the whole question from verse 6 is, is has God given up on his people? Has his promises just been broken? Is he not fulfilling what he promised to Abraham? And, and, and his whole answer throughout the entire chapter is to explain that, no, he's not given up. Um, he is doing exactly what he has planned from the very beginning. Uh, this has always been his plan, that salvation will come by grace through faith. And so Romans 9 is about grace versus works, not monergism versus synergism or Calvinism sure. versus Arminianism. It's just, it's about what God is accomplishing. And it starts from the very first example he gives with, with Hagar and Sarah. Um, Abraham tries yeah. to work his way and make his own child. He doesn't trust the promise. And that's what Hagar represents through Ishmael. And then you've got um, Sarah with Isaac, who represents the promise. And that's mm-hmm. why he goes on to say the children of the promise is through Isaac. Your children will be, re- your, your, your children will be reckoned. And so what is he saying? He's saying it's through faith. It's through trusting in God. How do we know that? Well, Paul even says so, verse 30 and following, mm-hmm. when he says, what shall we say about all these things? That the, that the Jews who have tried to obtain this through works, who have been pursuing it through works, yeah. have not attained it. But the, the Gentiles who have pursued it through faith, they are attaining it. And so he's talking about faith versus works and Jew versus Gentile, because in general, the, the Jews are pursuing it through works, yeah. whereas the Gentile is pursuing it. Can we, can we drill down into Romans 9? I was going to say, what about the Jacob and the Esau aspect That's, of that? I was about that. to yeah. ask that. So, you know, we look at, at uh, Micah, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. That's a, a reference to, I want to say Micah. Um, is it Micah? Where, where are you talking about the, the Malachi. Malachi. Malachi? I knew that yeah, didn't sound right. Yeah. I was like, why doesn't that sound right? Of of the, the Gentile nation and the Jewish nations. Um, uh, but but then you have, my next question was about Pharaoh. Because we have a quick answer for, oh, that's that's gentile jew that's obvious uh, but what about the pharaoh piece and that's what that's what the calvinists kind of rest their hat on as well right yeah th- that is quoting malachi but uh, pharaoh's not a nation uh, how can you say and that he's, he's hard he was an individual he's who's not hardened. A jew. Right. yeah so what do you do so both to, to, to jeff's question maybe explain the the, the, the jew gentile bit sure. that we see in malachi but I'd, I'd love to answer the the pharaoh question personally yeah. well l- let me go to the pharaoh question first um, and N.T. Wright gets really good into this. I don't agree with everything N.T. Wright teaches, but I think he does this very well. Is and he an open theist? No, N.T. Wright. What is no. what is what was he? He was kind of bashed he, well, or something recently. Yeah, his justification issues. That was and the way it. yeah, he, yeah, 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 yeah the way he defines certain aspects of justification. I apologize, sir. No, that's all right. Um, but one of the things he explains, along with other scholars, not just him, but um, the in Exodus. Is a, is a foreshadowing. Is mm-hmm. we all? I mean, we see Moses is a, is a type of Christ. Hebrews mm-hmm. even even yeah, alludes to yeah, this. Hebrews. And how many people have taught through Exodus and talked about being set free in Christ and how the Exodus event really is telling Christ's story through this this big event of the the freeing of the, the of God's people. Well, in that same narrative, Moses, if he represents Christ, who does Pharaoh represent? Pharaoh is hardened so as to demonstrate God's power over the gods of that nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and God is using an already rebellious person. He didn't make him rebellious. He didn't have to make people rebellious. He's, right. just, he's just naturally rebellious. It, he's says, just, it says in the early parts that Pharaoh hardened his, his heart, heart, and right. then later right. it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So right. it's like which, tag team which if you, which you, if you <laughs> hold to meticulous determinism of all things, he should always just say God is always doing it. Yeah. Because in, under, under meticulous determinism of, of men like Piper, he is always doing it. So why even the difference between when yep. he does it and when God does it? So the issue is not 
The issue is who does Pharaoh ultimately represent? Well, who is being hardened in the second Passover? Israel. So it's, it's such a turn of irony that, that Pharaoh is hardened so as to free the Israelites, and then the Israelites, Israelites are raised up for this very purpose, to reason that I might show my, my power through you, that Dang. through Israel, through the hardening Dang. of Israel, he brings in the nations. He, he grafts in all peoples, the Gentiles. And so Pharaoh is a type. And so when he was referring to Pharaoh, he's not trying to say, this is getting off my topic of the Jews right now. He's trying to demonstrate, look what God did in the first Passover. It's exactly what he's doing now. He's hardened Pharaoh so as to make his power known and to bring about redemption. He's doing he's that showing, now. He's, he's having them look in the mirror. So exactly. how does how does that not how does that not come into almost anti-Semitism that that the entire time Egypt you're the bad guy Egypt's the bad guy you think of Egypt and it's like Abraham goes into Egypt yeah, yeah. and you know uh, uh, there's bondage and captivity and God uses miraculous powers and sends him out with money and blessing and prosperity and then you know Jacob uh, uh, no Joseph gets sold into slavery and he's you know bound and then prosperity and freedom and yeah, salvation yeah. and like the cycle over and over with Egypt and then it's like he turns the head and he's like. Actually, Israel's the bad guy now. It's like, how does that not become anti-Semitism? Like, well, it real did. Quick? It kind of did. I, mean, I was going to Luther, say, yeah, Luther, <laughs> Luther. Luther and others. I yeah, mean, it, became, it led to the. Uh, I mean, it led to the Holocaust. I mean, a lot of theologians oh, helped man. to make that happen yeah. because they interpreted those kinds of things as anti-Semitism. But understand this: if you understand what Paul's teaching, yes, he says, "Okay, I've, I've told you, you've grown hardened. You're callous. Now I take the message to the Gentiles." And he's upset with them. And so it, it, verses like Acts twenty eight twenty eight do sound like anti-Semitism because he says, I'm giving up on you in a sense. I'm cutting you off. I'm going to go take this message to the Gentiles. At yeah. least they'll listen. Right. It's the whole they went highways right. and the byways. They rejected him. But so go hear find this. Everybody that's- cutting <laughs> somebody off is an act of mercy. I bound them all over to disobedience so I have, may have mercy on them all. How, how is that? Like in Corinthians when he says, warn a person once, twice, cut them off so you may save yep. their soul. Yeah. What's he talking about? Well, it's if you enable somebody in their sin and you continue to just support them and give them blessings and help them, then you're just enabling them in their sin and they're never going to reach the pigsty of their life. You've got to give them their inheritance. Yeah. Um, the story I tell in chapter six of my book, the Potter's uh, the Potter's Promise, is about a, a couple that comes to me at my first church when I was a university minister, and they've got a rebellious teenager living in the basement. You know, nineteen year old that needs to move out. But <laughs> you, and uh, but he's getting involved in drugs and alcohol and all kinds of problems, and his parents are just beside themselves. What do we do? And we had to end up counseling them and saying that the most loving thing you can do is cut them off. And I just remember the mother just weeping and saying, "We we love him. How can how can a loving person do this?" And we had to convince her the most loving thing you can do for your child in rebellion is to cut them off. Yeah. It's actually a merciful thing for you to do. Um, and the hope is. What? That they'll come back. The hope is that they'll recognize their ways, which is exactly what Paul argues. They've stumbled, but verse 11 of chapter 11, but not beyond recovery. Yeah. That my ministry to the Gentiles might provoke them to envy so that they too will be saved. How in the world is that a reprobate of the Calvinistic system? Yeah. If he hopes that the same ones who are hardened in Romans yeah. 9 are the same ones that his own ministry to the Gentiles might provoke to envy so that they may be saved. Also, what is being provoked to envy have anything to do with salvation under the Calvinistic worldview? Provoking anybody by envy or any other emotion is not going to have any impact on the will of man. It's only going to be 
effectual regeneration that's going to impact them. The reason envy is talked about is because if you're a hardened Israelite and you're seeing that prostitute down the street all of a sudden start right worshiping God. my God and she becomes a faithful wife and mother and she, when she worships, she actually cries yeah. and she's actually uh, into it and she, he begins to think deep down. He may not say it out loud because he wouldn't want to be judged by his other Pharisee friends, but deep down he's going... I want what she has. Exactly. It's real. Yeah. And that's what he hopes will provoke them to envy. The same ones who are cut off in Romans 9 are the ones that he hopes to graft back in if they'll leave their unbelief, according to verse 23 yeah. of chapter 11. So these are not people that Paul has given up hope on. He's praying for them. Even God says, uh, as he quotes in chapter 10, verse uh, 21, I hold out my hands to them all day long, speaking of Israel. And that posture of come to me, I want you, longing to Mm. gather them like a mother hen gathers her chicks. This is a God who is patient, long-suffering with them, and even in cutting them off, reluctantly cutting them off, he's doing that as an act of mercy towards them. He's actually an act of love. And so that's why anti-Semitism doesn't fit, because God's actually doing what he does because he loves them, not because he hates them or has rejected them. You're right. You are an evangelist. (laughs) (laughs) It is just like oozing out of you right now. I mean, I can... It's just well, in the atmosphere. Your, your other question yeah. was Jacob and Esau. Yeah. And we can touch on uh, that. I forgot already. Where's the altar call? Yeah. Yeah, let's well, do it. <laughs> Jacob and Esau, the, the, those two verses are separated by 1,500 years, where he speaks of the two nations in the womb. Okay. Yep. The, 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 two, the two people obviously represent two nations within the womb, but they're still individuals there. I mean, I, I don't deny, a lot, of, a lot of times Calvinists will go, well, also, Jacob and Esau are individuals. Yeah. I, I agree with that. And it's strong language. He's saying, I hated Yes, <laughs> right. Know, Before, so and, 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 and that's a quote yeah. from Malachi, as he already pointed yeah. out, which is a reflection of actually when the Edomites, which often that was a custom back then to refer to the national head as the nation. Yeah. So oh. to refer to the Edomites to, as Esau was very common. Um, and that's why Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And that's why they call it Israel, because it was, it was referring to Jacob, um, whose name was changed. And so when, when he says... Um, Esau I hated. He's not talking about an unborn baby. God hates unborn baby for no apparent <laughs> reason. He represents like. yeah. all reprobates throughout. <laughs> it's not what he's talking about. It, it is simply talking about the nation who has just now attacked Israel. Because remember, there's a condition to the original promise that he gave to Abraham. Those who bless you, I will bless. Mm-hmm. Those who curse you, I will curse. Well, what do the Edomites do? They curse Israel. They go after them. They try to kill them, even though God told them not to. Yeah. And before that, he was blessing them. There's a lot of other verses. In fact, at, at a Deuteronomy... It says, do not hate the Edomites, for they are your brother. God's not a hypocrite. He's not going to tell them not to hate somebody he hated for eternity. He, he loves and he's provided for them. He gave them the land that they have. He blessed them. But he takes away those blessings once they begin to curse the nation that he has given the promise through. And so when you understand that, you understand the context of what he's trying to, to, to bring out is that I have chosen Jacob for the honorable use of bringing the lineage, the Messiah and his message through the nation of Israel. I did not choose these other nations. I chose this nation to be the lineage. And so that there's, a, there's an election to service perspective there, that God's elected this nation for a noble purpose. For it doesn't mean that all the, you know, the descendants of Ishmael or Lot or all the other people don't just, have an opportunity for salvation. Like that's like the most Game convincing over. argument. Like who's elect in the Old Testament? Israel. Is all Israel in heaven? No. no. Then election must mean something there, other than what yes. you think it means. Well, and, and Calvinist, you know, and I read Piper's book and stuff, he, he does say, yeah, there's, an, a, there's a corporate election in the sense that he elects the entire nation of Israel. Israel to, to accomplish a particular purpose, but that's not about salvation. And so they acknowledge that too, but the problem is, is that 
you know, James White and others, whenever we're debating, what he'll do is he'll push on that and he'll say, well, what the apostle is doing, he's the apostolic interpretations, what he's saying is he's taking these, these types from the Old Testament, he's interpreting it to introduce this soteriology of, of what they call Calvinism, yeah. this individualized That was a type in the shadow of this. Right. Okay. And so he's, he's saying God, you know, Paul is ultimately taking these passages out of the Old Testament, and he must be, in a sense, eisegeting them. I mean, I know that, that you're, you, you know, we would never say that Paul's <laughs> eisegeting the Old Testament, yeah. but he would have to be because I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, or I will harden whom I have hardened when he's mm. quoting from the Old Testament. Those don't mean individual salvation there, and no Calvinist but, would interpret them in those passages as meaning that. But they do when it comes to Romans 9, which proves that Paul is taking something that didn't mean that then and trying to make it mean something different now. That's eisegesis. Yeah. Now, he's an apostle, so you can say, well, he gets a pass. He can, he's allowed to eisegete. Mm. But we don't have to do that on our side. Yeah. Paul meant the exact same thing that the first authors meant when he uses those verses. And they, they would... Not to get into the continuation debate, that's not for the purpose of the show, but they get very frustrated when people start talking about prophets today because they go, you have to use the Old Testament definition. No. But but you're not doing the yeah. same thing. I was for like, maybe Paul's not the one that eisegesis. <laughs> maybe it's them. You know, that's yeah. what it is. Right. Well, yeah, and that's obviously our argument if we if yeah. we believe they're wrong, which we do with respect still to them. No, but we, again, we would say we would teachers. say that they're ultimately making Paul an eisegete of Old Testament texts because yeah. he quotes from Old Testament all throughout Romans 9 through 11. And you have to ask yourself, what did it mean then in the Old Testament? Because if it means something different in the Old Testament than it means when he's quoting it, then he is eisegeting it. Now, maybe he's eisegeting under inspiration and that makes it okay. But I think it's a really strong point for our side because we don't have to have Paul eisegeting anything in order to make our soteriology work. And for the laymen who are li- listening, exegesis, eisegesis, exegesis is yeah, reading out of the text, job. eisegesis is reading into the text. Right. So I have a presupposition, a preconceived idea that I'm trying to make the text say. So exactly. catching everybody up to speed. Yes. But yeah. Yes, thank you for that. Yeah. I, that you, we need to understand. I forget to do that yeah. sometimes. <laughs> like, we're, that we're really good with I actually knew, so I didn't feel the need to ask <laughs> yeah, for Yeah, I got to so. make sure to, I, I toss that out there for everybody who's listening. Yeah. Yeah. That's usually my job. Who so. wants to leave Facebook to go to Google to figure out what that word means, <laughs> stay tuned. Right. Definition right. soon coming. Yes. Well, and, and I think once we understand that from Romans 9, the, the, I think the passage flows a lot better into chapters 10 and 11. Absolutely. Uh, there's, no, there's no switching from the individualized to the corporate perspective like James White has to do because he even admits it. He, you know, he says that's, it's individualized in Romans 9. It's corporate in, in 11. And, and I'm saying, no, it's exactly the same all throughout. I don't have to change that. I don't have to accuse Paul of eisegeting, though I know they would never verbalize that in that mm-hmm. way. Um, I... I, I so I think our our interpretations of Romans nine through eleven is a much stronger, most much more robust interpretation than what the Calvinists have to offer. And most Calvinists have no clue how we exegete Romans nine through eleven. I know just from experience, and I talk to a lot of them, and I say, "Well, what do you think we mean by that? What? How do you think we would explain that?" Oh, I don't know. There's no other way to take it except Calvinists, you know. And I'm like. <laughs> Okay, so what you're telling me is you have not studied anything beyond your own system, your own worldview. And that's that's where – and the the hardest thing is is that Calvinists think of themselves as very educated because compared to most Arminians and non-Calvinists, they are. are. But 
we're we're not most of them. Yeah, you know, there, there's some of us out there who that's actually like Christians are ignorant. <laughs> Lots yes. of them are, but that's yes. not to say all of them are. Right. He's so, being very humble right now. He's like he's <laughs> together. I'm like, no, you're you're there. You're in the well. This the, uh, this is what I wrote my thinker, dissertation yeah. on. So this is you know this has been Me, my myself, field of study. That, what but, was your dissertation on? On soteriology, okay. yes, with especially especially within the Southern Baptist Convention and the rise of the Young Russia Reformed type. How much of the Southern Baptist Convention is Armenian Calvinist? Like, is it a is it a split fifty fifty? Is well, it- uh, just to be clear, n- no Southern Baptist would probably refer to themselves as Armenian, um, though that's oftentimes how the the dichotomy is painted: Calvinism versus Armenian. Calvin and right, non Calvinist, right? And so. <laughs> That's why the, that's why there's certain labels like traditionalist, Southern Baptist traditionalist, um, which is not necessarily a great label, um, or provisionist, like I've used, and there's other labels that are out there. Nobody likes the labels. I mean, even there's a lot of Calvinists that don't yeah. like the label Calvinism, and I understand that. Um, the the point is is trying to get to the to the to what are you what do you mean by that, and try to give a label for it without having to explain yourself all the time, and that that's when some of these these things get a little bit hairy, um, and so. Um, Southern Baptist, according to statistics back in 2014, about 30 percent would affirm a, a form of Calvinism, and and the rest, 70 percent, would say they're they're concerned about it or they're not. But I would say most of that 70 percent are fairly ignorant of of any of the doctrines. I mean, they just have this yeah. kind of this nebulous yeah. explanation of how once that saved would be. always saved. That's they yeah, and that's, the, that's kind of the, the one only, they claim the, that the only one that they would claim. So I, I would say there's probably 10 percent. <laughs> There's probably about 10% of Southern Baptists, maybe 10% of Southern Baptists, who are non-Calvinists but understand why they're not Calvinist and could explain to you the doctrine of predestination from our perspective. Yeah. But of the 30% who are Calvinists, I would say 95% of them can explain why they're Calvinists. And that's why there's such a, a, a lopsided perspective. Because mm-hmm. the Cal- if I throw a stone and hit a Calvinist and I throw a stone and hit a non-Calvinist within the Southern Baptist Convention and I put them in a room... Ninety-nine times out of a hundred, the Calvinists will walk all over right. the non-Calvinists. And, and to be fair, when when you are confronted with Calvinistic doctrine, and you go, "Well, it sounds right, but it it, it kind of defiles my conscience. Like I don't like that it sounds right." It feels and then dirty. you just dive into it because you have yeah. to know: is God this way or not? Right. And there's so much content. So yes. so you don't just if you're a Calvinist, you don't just go, "Yeah, I'm I'm kind of a Calvinist." You are completely a Calvinist <laughs> yes. because it's so contradictory to, to uh, I think, modern philosophy that when, when you approach it, it goes, no, that's foreign to my paradigm. It's foreign to my, my understanding of God and Scripture. That can't be right, but it sounds good. And, and you, you just go deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole, whereas our position, when we present it, people go, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I see right. that. And it doesn't, it doesn't offend the conscience enough to dive, dive into, into study. Exactly. Is that, does that make You're sense? You're exactly right. Yeah. And, and that's also the difference is that when one becomes a Calvinist, um, they become passionate about that because it becomes kind of the central aspect of their doctrine and their and their, mm-hmm. their gospel and I mean it is the root of what they believe and yeah. what they hold to and therefore they they become evangelists for Calvinism. I was one. I was yeah. very much of an evangelist for Calvinism because I saw it as a central issue and I was a little bit upset that my my pastor and my youth pastor didn't teach me it. I mean this is so obvious. Look at Romans nine. It's obviously Calvinism. Yeah. Look at Ephesians one. Predestination. I never was taught predestination. So th- you've been hiding these truths from me. What, why are you so namby pamby and weak? And and why don't you teach me real doctrine? And so there's anger that kind of built up in me. And this is what they call the cage stage. 
of Calvinism mm-hmm. where you kind of you're just kind of angry and you're kind of mean. You're kind of I need people to understand this. Why don't more people understand Romans yeah. nine? Darn it! And so you start just evangelizing for Calvinism. And there's a lot of those young, restless, reformed type Calvinists out there who are just trying to get as many people to understand Calvinism that they that they can. The problem is, is they don't have a, a full range understanding of the different sociological robust. Uh, systems on both sides all they have is what they've learned from piper or a couple of articles or maybe a couple of videos online and therefore they've adopted this tulip system and um and they they haven't really gone below the surface most of them again there's exceptions but most of them haven't gone below the surface to really answer some of the the deeper issues with regard to how the other side would interpret some of the text in question what do you do with like um and we've been talking about you know, Calvinism, non-Calvinism, and even Arminianism. What, what would you do with like the like the modalistic perspe- perspective of like uh, uh, William Lane Craig or these guys out Molinism? there? Molinism, yeah, yes. Um, well, I, I, I think, said modalism. I yeah, apologize. Molin, that's that's yeah, completely modalism. different yeah. thing. Yeah. Oh, Patrick. Um, okay. yeah. <laughs> Come on, Patrick. <laughs> Patrick. Not modalism. Yeah, that's good. That's why I started Chuck. I like to name drop William Lane Craig as much as possible because we okay. went to Israel. We went to Israel together, and so we got to spend a lot of time and talk. Um, and he's a genius. He's a philosopher. I think yeah. foremost, first and foremost, but he's also a theologian. He's got some great theology um, podcast and stuff out too. He does his. Well, Wednesday if you're buddies, studies. you can drop our name because yeah, you know, we're yeah. super popular. Yeah, yeah, go, yeah. Ahead go ahead, drop. Yeah, I'll, I'll drop his name. Yeah, yeah, please do. Um, I, and I've got a friend, uh, Eric Hernandez, works in my office now. He's our uh, on-site apologist, lead apologist, and uh, he's a, he's a Molinist as well. And he's always pushing on me <clears> on this issue. And and I, my position is, I think it is a sufficient philosophical answer to the to the issue of omniscience and free will. Um, I don't think it's a necessary explanation. In other words, I don't think in order to be a theologian to read your Bible to understand your Bible, you have to adopt Molinism. And that's one of the issues I have with my friend William Lane Craig. Is can that we a, explain that real quick? So I don't. What does that okay. mean? Molinism. Molinism. Yeah, yeah, okay. But. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for this one because I probably won't do justice to it. But um, it's it's based it's named after Louis Molina. Okay. Um, you know, and, and it's it's old, ultimately um, it's a it's basically a philosophical explanation um, of how God's omniscience works because there's the problem of if God knows all things. And he created, therefore, he must have determined all things to be what they are because mm-hmm. he knew it creating it. That's that kind of the mindset. Yeah. So, so like foreknowledge doesn't determine predestination. Right. So one of the linchpin scriptures is David goes in with the ephod. Hey, is Saul going to come out and kill yeah, us? Okay, yeah. And he goes, yeah, he's going to. And he goes, oh, okay, and takes off the ephod and leaves, and Saul doesn't do it. Yeah. So God's foreknowledge right. of a matter didn't necessarily mm-hmm. predetermine that matter. Right, yes. And so there's the, the, a thing called middle knowledge, which is God knows all possible contingencies, all possible worlds they'll talk <laughs> okay. about. And so it's the string theory of God's Avengers, brain. Avengers yes. three, Doctor Strange. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So okay. yeah, he's so tracking with the science fiction now. God knows not only what you will do; He also knows everything you could do in given different circumstances and situations. And so, yeah. um, and so it's it's explaining how God has um, sovereignly in His uh, His His foreknowledge and knowledge of all things can still bring about a world with libertarianly free creatures, creatures who have the ability to make free. Uh, de- self-determined choices. Mm. And so it's a philosophical philosophical explanation of how that works. And it, it gets very deep and into the weeds. Yeah, it but, sounds like there's we got a few minutes left and it's yeah. probably not going to happen. <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, I, so, just, and I just wanted to know. Other, thoughts, yeah. There's other philosophies like That's Boethius, um, the Constellation of Philosophy written in the 5th century was the most predominant philosophy 
of most theologians that still held to libertarian free will and omniscience. It's what C.S. Lewis proposed, and I, I actually agree more with that perspective. Again, I think it's I don't think it's a necessary position either, but I think it's sufficient to explain how God can be omniscient but not deterministic. Yeah. Whereas the Calvinist ultimately says omniscience demands mm-hmm. determinism. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I just don't think. And that's, that's where I think that rational. There, there's why there's such an, an offense, if I can call it that, amongst them is because we're undermining God's glory when we undermine yeah. his his predetermination and all these things. So. Right. Well, and, and, and I, I think I know you're getting to the close here, but I, I would just point out sovereignty does not mean determinism. Come on, buddy. Okay. Sovereignty means God does what he wants. Yeah. Okay. So you can't assume that God wants a world yeah. of automatons. And or maybe wants... what he wanted was to do it this way. Right. <laughs> and so you can't beg the question by assuming that yeah. God sits in heavens and does what he wants means that he wants a world that he controls their choices. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I agree with A.W. Tozer that God has decreed not which choice we'll make, but that we'll be free to make it, and that a God less than sovereign would be afraid to grant such freedom to his creatures. Ooh. And so I, I, I have a higher People get view. saved reading Tozer, man. Yeah. <laughs> I have a higher view of sovereignty than my Calvinistic friends, and I know they don't like Dang. to hear that. Bah, 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 bah. <laughs> no, okay. We need, we need like a... Uh, a mic drop. Yeah. Uh, like when you uh, want to, can you do that graphic, right now? Build like in that. the top right corner. Build that right now. just like, oh, that was a good one. And we'll just like have a scoreboard and then we'll keep record <laughs> of who, who does the best mic yeah, drop Yeah, like, like strikeouts in a baseball game. Yes. <laughs> we'll need to do that. You'll have me um, back on when y'all get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah we'll get that yeah. set up no, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get some high scores set up there. Uh, but but tell us once again, for those who are, who've tuned in a little bit later so in the program, good. a little about you, a little about your ministry, oh. uh, how people can connect with you, support you. Uh, what are some 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 endeavors that you're about to get into that you need help with? That kind of sure. Thing? Well, sociology 101com is the best place to go to find uh, where we are. We have a Facebook page, a group page, also titled with Sociology 101 that you could find us on. If you've got now. questions, we've got a lot of great scholars that visit there quite regularly at our site. There's also some idiots and some very mean people. And mm-hmm. I apologize in advance for some of those people. I try to stop them. I try. We try to delete them. We try to manage it. And we have uh, people, uh, you know, always deleting stuff. And sure. it's just it, you just can't control the the internet world. But um, there are places to get answers. Um, my book, The Potter's Promise. Where would you put Jonathan Pritchard in that? In that because he's on here and he's like, I'm going to come on the show and I'll be way more interesting than. Uh, uh, Dr. Flowers. Pritchett so. is one of my best friends. Yeah. And he oh, likes to be the thorn in my flesh. Yeah. Oh, I could tell. He likes that. He was doing it for fun. I could tell. He wants to try to push me to be a better man. And that's, I Praise love God. Jonathan Pritchett for <laughs> okay, that. Good. So All he right. hasn't been blocked yet. No, not yet. Well, good. But soon. But very soon. soon. Excellent. Yes, I think okay. I'll block him now Have you just for this. determined it by yes. your will? Yes. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. So, so, so I got you off your, 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 your tangent, not tangent, your, your presentation. Yeah. Facebook, website, yeah. Pages. If you want to know more about the interpretation of Romans 9, Ephesians 1, John 6, the book, The Potter's Promise, available on Amazon, okay. leave a review. That helps so much. We have like over 75 reviews. Yeah. And the more reviews that people leave, uh, the more that, that, that um, Amazon puts it up in the, the top of the search list. Yeah. So that really helps us a lot, too. Excellent. We're a big Excellent. Fight. Yeah. We've got a lot of other books out there that are probably getting in the thousands, if not 10,000s of reviews. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Usually so. with John Piper's name on exactly, the front of it. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. yes. Or John MacArthur's name on yeah. it, one of the two. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> one of them, John's. Well, guys, thank you so much for tuning in this week to The Remnant Radio. We broadcast every single Monday night at 8 30 p.m. Central Standard Time. We have different pastors and teachers, theologians come on from different churches and denominations to help grapple and wrestle with theological issues. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Uh, we'll see you next week. We're going to have 
have uh, Matt Lockett and one of his buddies uh, from up in Washington coming on to talk about national blood guilt. I, I personally wrestle with like national guilt and, and Christ setting us free and we don't have a curse, but then we've got some verses that we have to wrestle with. So it's going to be a fun show, uh, non-combative as usual. But I totally disagree with you. Yeah, I'm sure. It's going to be awesome. Look, Pritchard says he loves me. Look right there. Aww. <laughs> we have it in writing. Be blessed, guys. We'll see you next time. <laughs> want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.